For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Welcome, everyone. For new people, uh, I'm Tygen Layton, the Guiding Dharma teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. And it's my pleasure to have speaking today uh, Sarah Lytle. Uh, many of you know her, but for newer people, I'll um, Sarah is on the board of Ancient Dragon Zen Gate uh, from uh, overseas. She lives in Cambridge, England. Um, and uh, we have two people on the board out of state. Co was here. Uh, maybe she's lurking somewhere. Um, um, yeah, so Sarah lives in Cambridge where she works as a chaplain. Uh, Sarah, was, Sarah was one of our UC, University of Chicago Divinity School interns um, at Ancient Dragon. I see our current UC Divinity School intern Sophia is here online. Hi. Um, and uh, Sarah is one of those still somewhat rare creatures, a second generation American Buddhist. So her parents, Robert and Brenda, I practiced with at Tassajara Monastery in mid 80s. And it's great to have Sarah speaking today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Titan. And uh, it's so it's so nice to to see you all. I feel I feel um, uh, very tender to be in your presence uh, today. Um, and thank you, um, Titan, for inviting me um, to to give a talk. Um, we'll see we'll see where we go. Um, and thank you everyone for, for gathering and being here and for creating such a, a beautiful sangha, um, such a wonderful community. Um, I, I'm, I'm comforted to know that uh, I remain connected to you all, even though I'm over here uh, on the other side of the ocean. Um, I think I know, I know most, some of you, I don't know all of you. Um, as Tegan mentioned, I used to live in Chicago and moved to Cambridge, um, England about a year ago, just over a year ago. And um, this morning for you, afternoon for me, um, I would like to talk about impermanence. Um, it's a theme, it's a big theme um, that I've been working with a lot in my own life. Um, both in my personal life, uh, but also in my work as a hospital chaplain. Um, as there's no other, or being in a hospital is a very good reminder um, that life is constantly shifting and changing from one moment to the next. So I'd like to explore how impermanence shows up in our lives and to wonder together about how to be with it how to maybe take it as our teacher or perhaps just how to tolerate it a bit better. I'll offer some, some thoughts and reflections on my own experience. Um, and then as we open it up for discussion, I'd really love to hear from you all. It's something that we're all muddling about in together. So according to the Buddhist view, from microscopic to cosmic levels, the phenomena of life are in constant process, arising and ceasing, coming together, falling apart, To me, impermanence is a teaching that is at once extremely relatable and accessible, 
I think when I first encountered it, I was like, oh, yes, I know what that is. Um, But also deeply mysterious. And the impermanence of conditioned phenomena, so phenomena that come together, um, is one of the fundamental teachings of the Buddha. In fact, according to Prince Siddhartha's origin story, which I imagine many of you know, um, his father, the king, went to extreme lengths to protect the prince from encountering impermanence, perhaps knowing that such an encounter can be a great teacher and guide, um, but can also really shake things up in a big way. When Prince Siddhartha did finally leave the palace walls as an adult man, married with a young child, he did not have to travel very far before he encountered someone sick, someone old, and a corpse being carried to the cremation grounds. When he asked his chariot driver for an explanation, He was simply told that all beings are subject to these things, to sickness, to old age, and to death. This touched his heart deeply, and he was profoundly unsettled by it. I can imagine uh, coming into your adult life having never encountered this. And as the story goes, on his return to the palace, he passed a wandering ascetic walking peacefully along and decided to devote his life to figuring out suffering. He left everything and everyone he knew to follow the spiritual path. From seeing these three teachers, or four teachers, I guess. I find this story very moving. I wonder what his conversation with the chariot driver was like. And I I feel gratitude that he had someone with him to explain what he was seeing. I feel sorrow for his wife and his child and his family suddenly dropped into the pain of loss as Siddhartha left them. I can't, yeah, what a story. I imagine that most of us encountered these truths, that all humans are subject to illness, death, and loss at a much younger age than Prince Siddhartha did and are still encountering them now. Perhaps it's what you brought you to the Dharma as well. I know it keeps me coming back. We could spend this whole time talking about this story. I think um, it's one of those kind of mystical, mythical origin stories that really unfolds um, the more you sit with it. I find story, music, and poetry to be really useful tools um, in my work as a chaplain. Illness, trauma, death, these kind of shadows of impermanence are somehow both intensely personal and unique to people who are experiencing them, but also fundamentally human and universal experiences not just human, uh, all beings. So the many rich, creative, philosophical, and spiritual traditions of the world are filled with encounters of them. So I'd like to use a poem by um, Reiner Maria Rilke to guide us as we think about impermanence together. I'm 90% sure I've used this poem in a Dharma talk before. 
Um, I first encountered it when I started out training as a chaplain um, 10 years ago. And I find myself regularly returning to it, finding solace and comfort. I think I found it at a time where I was really overwhelmed by what I was seeing and uh, needed some guidance from somebody. Uh, the poem is for Hans Carosa, and this is a translation by uh, Stephen Mitchell. I'll read it through once now, and then at the end of the talk, I'll, I'll read it through again. Here it goes. Losing two is still ours, and even forgetting still has a shape in the kingdom of transformation. When some things let go of, it circles. And though we are rarely the center of the circle, it draws around us its unbroken, marvelous curve. When I first read this poem, it really felt like Rilke taking me by the hand and showing me a gentler way of relating with impermanence. He offers that even in loss, we remain connected. Losing, too, is still ours. And that connection isn't something we need to struggle to create or even hold on to really tightly. We can even forget. It's there, whether we know it or not. If we can hold experience with some openness, letting go, things can follow their own path. They can draw their marvelous circles, their marvelous curves around us. We can be in their orbit. And I find the idea that we're not in the center of this circle to be a huge relief. Um, last summer, one of the wonderful things about living in England is that we're, we're very close to other places, other countries, other landscapes. Um, so last summer, we, I got to accompany my partner on a trip to Spain. We had a conference and then we uh, went off and did some travel together. And I was, at the time, I was feeling really burnt out and really hopeless about my work. Um, and all I wanted to do was go somewhere warm and swim in the ocean. So we found a, a nature reserve with a beach uh, along the Alboran Sea, which is where the Mediterranean opens into the Atlantic Ocean. The water was clear and cold and salty. Uh, I wanted desperately to go in, but I was cold and a little bit afraid. It's good to be afraid of the ocean. But I am a strong swimmer, and my partner had assured me that the likelihood of a shark attack was very low. I brought a boogie board with me, thinking it would provide some reassurance and security in the waves. Um, there's something about being, I love to swim, um, and there's something about being in wild water that is both deeply attractive and magnetizing and utterly terrifying to me. It's... It, uh, Perhaps it's something to do with the unknown and, and the power of it. Um, so I, I brought a boogie board just, just in case. But the waves were choppy and the boogie board was for, it was for boogieing in to get into the waves. It wasn't really for floating around in. 
Um, so it kept kind of bouncing around and whacking me. So I decided it was more of an interference than a support and was actually making it harder to swim. So I brought it back to the beach, took a deep breath and went back into the water. I allowed the cold to come close against my skin and I laid back into the waves. My body floated easily on that salty water. There were fish beneath me, yellow and blue swimming in schools. I lay there floating in that cold water for as long as I could, letting the waves sway me back and forth. Little whispers of anxiety would emerge in my body as I would think about where I was. The vast open expanse that I was playing at the edge of and my body would kind of tighten up and begin to sink. I knew there was nothing actually to be afraid of. So I tried to simply rest in that water amongst all the creatures who called it home. I remembered learning how to float as a child, figuring out the balance of effort and relaxation, stillness and motion. I thought of the motion of my own body, the blood and hormones and digestive juices, the genes and atoms and electrical impulses, joining with the rhythm of the sea. Gradually, the fear gave way to delight and maybe a bit of bliss. Sometimes, being with impermanence can be a bit like this. When I came back to work after this trip, I realized that um, I do my worst chaplaining, um, if that's a verb, um, when I'm trying to be really certain and helpful and knowledgeable about things. When I have lots of ideas, great ideas about what's, what's happening in front of me. Kind of, oh, this person is struggling to do X. If only they would do what I think is best, they would suffer less. Why don't they do what I do? They, I definitely have it all figured out. I think, and I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on this, and if perhaps you do this as well. Um, I think that this is a reaction to my fear of what's unfolding in front of me. My fear of impermanence and all that that entails. I think I'm desperately just trying to find something certain to hold on to. So I end up accumulating lots and lots of boogie boards and they start whacking me. And before I know it, I'm somewhere else. I'm not with the person in front of me. (laughs) I try to banish the mystery rather than surrender to it. And in, in so doing, I miss the point entirely. It's very hard to be present, open, and loving. Which in, in the moment, in chaplaincy, that's, that's really all it's about. Ideas about things are good, not uh, saying that's the wrong thing to do, but in the moment, they can really get in the way. So this experience of floating in the ocean really opened up something for me. And I started to wonder if instead of looking for something solid and unchanging when I'm starting to be a little freaked out, I could learn to rest in the motion. Floating in the great sea of change and transformation. 
rather than trying to hold on tightly, brace against the nature of how things are. Maybe I can learn how to hold with an open hand, an open heart. Life is never going to become permanent. Things fall apart. They crumble, they shift, they change. But I didn't need to get rid of my fear in order to float. To the contrary, it was was important. It was cluing me into the fact that there were forces far more powerful than I at work. The ocean is big and powerful and scary. To treat it like the pond in my backyard would be, would be foolish. And I think impermanence is similar. Whenever we encounter it, it brings up our deepest, most tender, most human stuff. It can be messy and uncomfortable. But it can also help break our hearts open. It connects us to all sentient beings. It is life itself. We are all coming and going, intertwining and separating. This thing I take to be a solid, permanent self is no such thing at all. I was reading that the human body is inhabited by inhabited by millions of tiny living organisms. Those are also me, as much as my hand is, birthing and dying. When I try to make solid what is impermanent, either clinging to it or pushing it away, I find those tend to be my habitual reactions. Rather than letting it flow and unfold, I really alienate myself from the flow of life. But amidst all this churning and change, it is really helpful to have something to hold on to. A flotation device can be a really useful thing. Of course, some are more and less skillful than others. One of the early Buddhist stories compares the Dharma to a raft. Helpful, really helpful for crossing the river to awakening. But ultimately something we must also leave behind. Two things that have been deeply helpful for me um, as I ride the waves of change are being in nature and my meditation practice. And I think what makes these two things particularly useful is that they don't, they don't actually offer an escape from impermanence. Sometimes they bring it right to your doorstep. But amidst it, they help me find a place of stillness within that motion. A kind of stillness that's not permanent or static, but can be a place of refuge. The stillness that comes from not ruminating on the past or running away into the future, but from being right here in this moment. So my meditation practice and uh, again, I'd I'd love to hear um, what this experience is like for you. Um, I've come to think of it as a sort of container in which I can experience my life uh, and notice all of my reactions to it. We're always being exposed to pleasure and pain. 
We're always swinging back and forth. I, like most most human beings, uh, tend to react to the emergence of suffering by pushing it away and to the emergence of pleasure by holding on tight and trying to get more of it. And I see this all the time in my practice. I get discouraged when I have a bored and distracted session. I judge it and wish it were different. And I cling to my pleasant and relaxing sessions and want more and more of them. But that's okay. That's just what humans do. (laughs) And the beauty of a regular practice um, is it helps me to keep coming back again and again, no matter what the experience is like. And it prepares me for being a chaplain of showing up and arriving no matter what is unfolding in front of me. It's like learning how to float comfortably amidst the sea of my mind. I, uh, I love going to used bookstores in a new city and figuring out which ones have the best selection of Buddhist books. Um, it feels kind of like tapping into a mysterious shadow sangha um, in a new place. And I uh, found one of found the one in Cambridge that has the best selection. And I um, picked up a little book um, on the Four Noble Truths by um, Venerable Ajahn Sumedho. That's a nice uh, mudra on the front. And something that delights me about the Dharma is that I can encounter the same teaching over and over again and think that I understand it. But when the time is right, it will penetrate to my heart and something will shift a bit. And there was something like that in this little book for me. Um, In this book, uh, John Sumedho, he's a monk from the Thai forest Um, Theravadan tradition of Buddhism. He goes through the Four Noble Truths and offers some very helpful teachings about them. I think I've picked it up because I I often um, struggle to explain what Buddhism is about when people ask me. Um, (laughs) It's a perennial task to find a good elevator pitch. Um, So uh, this was this was helpful for that. Um, in his in the section on the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, um, he writes about his experience with sitting with painful emotions and how um, in meditation practice we get a chance to see an illustration of the process of liberation. Uh, Painful emotions can feel so, especially when they come up in our practice, um, can feel so immovable and solid and permanent. Um, But they, like everything else, are subject to cessation, to ceasing. They come together and they come apart. This may sound pretty obvious, but it was a real eye-opener for me. Um, And it really illustrated to me how impermanence is also a gift. Like like many people, I uh, often relate to negative emotions as an obstacle in my practice and in my life. Um, I rather than just a part of the experience of being human or even as an opportunity for awakening. I think this is a very common way of relating to painful feelings. Um, They're painful. They're sticky. They're unpleasant. John Sumedho writes, before you can let things go, You have to admit them fully 
into consciousness. To be present with what emerges can be very scary. But if we can allow what arises in meditation just to be, just to be, without interfering with it too much, we can see that it will naturally disintegrate. If we can shine that compassionate, loving awareness on those things that we don't like about ourselves, they can be easier to be with. So I've been, I've been practicing with saying to all the anger and boredom and shame and restlessness that emerges when I sit down and be with myself um, as welcome. Doesn't need to be destroyed. It will naturally cease. It will naturally change. And I have found that the practice of sitting with openness and compassion with whatever arises is profoundly good training for life and for death. Coming back to our cushion, to our breath, to our bodies, we come back to the present moment. And we learn to inhabit our life in a slightly different way. When I do finally acknowledge impermanence, it can feel like a relief because I think I'm reacting to it all the time, but just without awareness. As I mentioned in my bad chaplaining, I cling to my ideas about who I am and who you are as an attempt to kind of comfort myself in the face of all the change. Unfortunately, this can be really alienating from one another and from the present moment. And when we recognize this, we can feel compassion for ourselves and for all the other beings in the same boat, fumbling about. <laughs> when I first moved here, I had a, I had a very difficult time. Um, I think I've, no, nobody likes change. <laughs> Moving is hard. <laughs> Um, but everything just felt new and out of place and unfamiliar. And I missed my old apartment, my old friends and my old neighborhood. As I, as I tried to kind of nest into our apartment and, um, you know, I had to go out and buy things and the stores were all different (laughs) and I kept getting lost in the mall and just spending hours wandering around under fluorescent lights and just uh, not finding quite what I wanted to make, to make things right. And I longed to just hop in my little Prius and go to the target on Wilson. And uh, I kept thinking that someone else, another person, or perhaps another version of myself would be doing this much better and much more gracefully And I think this is part of where a lot of the suffering came from. I kept experiencing that this transition should be something other than it was. I wanted to be happy and settled and writing home with glowing reports about how wonderful my new life was. Um, And it was also wintertime. It was, I moved January 10th. And winter is a difficult season for many people, um, especially in Chicago. It's a time of rest and dormancy and stillness. It's a time when a lot of shadows can emerge. We live, one of the things I love about our life here is that we live near several patches of really a strong nature, a protected land where animals and plants can 
create their ecosystems without too much interference. Uh, when I first arrived here, my job didn't start for another two months. So I had lots of time on my hands to uh, ruminate about how much I missed things. Um, so I started just going for a lot of walks and I started taking my meditation practice outside. And as I spent more time in nature, I started to pay attention in a new way. I started hearing the bird songs and beginning to identify that there were multiple different calls. I noticed the different colors of green in the dense tangles of hedges. I began to feel some solace and belonging. I began to see that all that I left behind was still orbiting around and within me, never too far away. And as I watched the animals and plants doing their, their winter things, I began to accept that maybe this time was just going to be uncomfortable. That's just what transitions are like. They shake up all the things we thought were permanent, or at least a little less impermanent. And we have to find new ground. And as, as, as beings, that's very scary and unsettling. And by expecting things to be easier, I was not being very kind to myself. I was not showing my experience the compassion that it needed. As they tend to do, things gradually became easier. I learned which stores to go to, and I stopped looking at everything and seeing not Chicago. And instead, I began to arrive in the present moment. It's impossible to talk about impermanence without talking about death. I have to imagine that that is what I, and along with probably most of us, I'm actually afraid of when I encounter it. Death is very mysterious, and many of my thoughts about it are more like feelings and images than coherent sentences. But maybe we can go there in our discussion if you'd like. I think nature has a lot to teach us about, about death. It has a lot to show about the constant coming and going, birthing and dying of existence. Just sitting in a forest, you witness the kingdom of transformation. The trees, the ivy, the bugs, the dirt, all in various stages of living and dying. When a tree dies, it's transformed. It becomes a home for bugs and birds, it becomes eaten by mycelium and mushrooms. Nature can also be quite harsh and violent. Sometimes you see very wonderful things, a little family of ducklings, and sometimes very sad things, death, violence, pain. It's all there. It's all there. So I will end by returning us once more to the Rilke poem. There's so much I love about this poem. But 
uh, today I'm sticking on this idea of not being at the center of things and how this kind of goes against the grain of my usual way of relating to myself and my experience. A usual way that I suspect causes me a lot of suffering. And then I'm really intrigued by this line that even forgetting has a shape in the kingdom of transformation. It points to me at the quality of awareness that can arise sometimes in meditation. It can be a sort of, I've never used the word forgetting before, but it resonates. It can be a sort of letting go of our habitual way of relating to things and seeing things differently. A forgetting of our discursive chatter and solid ideas we have about what's emerging within us and around us. So I'll read the poem again and um, then we can open, open things up a bit for discussion. I hope, I hope what I've said has been helpful and resonated and um, I look forward to hearing, hearing from you all about what, what it's brought up for you and, and what you have to say. For Hans Carosa. Losing two is still ours. And even forgetting still has a shape in the kingdom of transformation. When something's let go of, it circles. And though we are rarely the center of the circle, it draws around us its broken, unbroken, marvelous curve. So thank you, everyone. Hi, Sarah. It's so good to see you. It's so good to hear you. And thank you so much for your talk. So what I have is not a not a question, but something to share. Um, I guess it's from my many years of teaching experience where I very much relate to your thought about, you know, um, well, you, 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 you spoke about bad chaplaining. Uh, and and I, I feel that's the same way that I that I, I do some of my most bad teaching when I have the the clearest ideas about how to go about things. But here's a, here's another thing that I've learned over the years from from talking to students many years later. I don't know what's bad teaching and what's good teaching. I don't know what is just the thing that my students needed to hear. And I might be sitting over there thinking, oh, I am really just screwing up today because I'm, because I'm, you know, trying to do it right and messing up and they're, and they're just getting what they, what they need. Uh, and I think maybe that's another aspect of not being in the center of the circle, which as you say, is such a relief. Thank you for that beautiful talk. Thank you, David. I, uh, I love that. It's it's so it's so true. Um, and I will remember that. <laughs> but, uh, it, it's a bit, I imagine, yeah, it's a bit mysterious. Kind of we we try our best, <laughs> we show up, um, we offer what we can and then see what happens, I suppose. Um, which can be uncomfortable. Uh, I was thinking about what you said in relation to teaching too. Um, but what I was wondering about was to me, there's sort of like three kinds of um, experience. I mean, one is like when you're with another person and you open yourself to listen and, and, and to hear them and to attend to them and you take that in. And then, and then there's a kind of experience you were talking about when you're, like floating in the ocean or you're meditating and then there's a lot of variance of that. I mean, sometimes, you know, you're just 
meditating and sometimes you can go into more like analytical consolidation and 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 thinking about all the moments when you've attended to somebody else and and you know what what are your reflections and and you know letting your learning consolidate and and then there's like you know when you come back and share those reflections with a group of people like we do in a sauna um like i guess we're doing now um so i i don't know i mean i guess all three things are important or three kinds of experience and learning i was just wondering about that Yeah, thank you. I, I think you're right. Um, and perhaps it's it's knowing when when is the right time for for which one. Or or um, yeah, we're not getting stuck. Maybe. <laughs> I have the kind of the image of a, a bell being able to to ring uh, without, uh, you know, the, the the body kind of has to be open uh, for the sound to resound for the vibrations. Yeah. Mm. But that's and yeah, and then the same with the sauna when it's a group. And and that has something to do with the center of the circle and and letting the reverberations go out and yeah, not um, no no one person being the center. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I um, you said. Uh, that um, make attempts to banish the mystery instead of surrender to it. Um, I, I was thinking, my my mother is ninety two, and, and her also her it's dementia is getting worse and worse. And I realized that as you said that that I I'm trying to manage the mystery, you know, um, like get a bunch of boogie boards along the way because I don't know what's going to happen, and I want to know what's going to happen. And um, I can feel the freedom of just like letting go of the, uh, right. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, we've switched roles, and I'm doing things like looking at the corners of furniture if she falls. You know, <laughs> it's just like I there's only so much I can do, and then let go. Like what what can I responsibly do, and then surrender to the fact that she will die. And I don't want her to. So that's the fear you were talking about. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that um, that experience. Um, it can it can feel kind of counterintuitive to surrender or open or whatever the right word is. Um, Especially when there's a lot of yeah, frightening and painful uh, stuff emerging. Um, okay. Uh, thank you so much for your talk, Sarah. I really enjoyed it. Um, I uh, I especially liked your. Uh, example of the ocean, you know, of, of your attempt to deal with your fear of it with the paddleboard or the boogie board. And, uh, and that you then felt free to give it up and there was a sense of release and enjoyment. Uh, that that transition, I think, is very real um, in a lot of situations. And um, it, uh, recently, a friend of mine sent me an email inviting me to do this course 
it having to do with the transition of dying herself. And, um, and it was like interesting um, in that it sees it as a developmental process as a transition, you know, in it, and um, that, you know, moving, um, you know, so people have all different thoughts about what that means. Um, but I think the thoughts around nature and it being part of nature and um, and the idea of it being a transition um, is useful and kind of fits, I think, with Buddhist ideas in general, but but your your comments were very helpful. I think bringing me closer to some of my own thoughts and reactions. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Yeah, I think that um, idea of transition feels very intu intuitive to me as well. Um, yeah, and it's uh, yeah, painful. Uh, development is, is a hard, there are growing pains, and teething, and yeah. There's a cartoonist named Ted Rawls, and um, I like his cartoons. And one day he had. Can you speak up a little bit, Jim? Oh, yeah. One day he had a cartoon where he was talking about how irritated he became with his mother because he had to repeat things to her that he had just said or remind her of things that she was supposed to know. And he started getting really cross with her. She went to the doctor and got a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And in the last frame of the cartoon, he said, why did it take a diagnosis for me to be kind? <laughs> and I thought that was a very profound idea that is really impinging on my life right now. And... Um, but I thought fit into this discussion pretty well. Mm -hmm. I see Tigan's hand is raised. Uh, yeah, Ed had his hand up before, so maybe he should go before me. Okay, Ed. Yeah, no, thanks, Tigan. Uh, thank you, Sarah. It's so wonderful to hear from you from such a far off land of of knights and castles and so on. And um, uh, even though I'm working today, your, your, your thoughts will be with me throughout the day and in, in my communications with so many others that will be here later on. Um, but I just want to, I have a couple um, observations, questions regarding your beautiful talk. If you're roaming the streets of a historic city in Cambridge, going from bookstore to bookstore, there's no reason to have fond memories of nostalgia of the Target on Wilson in Uptown. <laughs> you need never go back, really. <laughs> and <clears throat> there was an article in the paper today about um, the cathedral in Milan, which technically was completed or started in 1350 or something, and they've never finished it, of course. And there is an entire industry that just maintains this cathedral because it is such an important symbol to the people of Milan as a reconciliation of time in the past, their future, their identity, and what it means to live in Milan and to be, to be Milanese. And so this human longing for permanence is an extraordinarily beautiful thing as well in the face of its, its, its impossibility. So as a reconciliation of, of, of a miracle of witness to the desire to be uh, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we see so many examples of it in our great cities historically. Thank you again for bringing it to mind. Yes, thank you, Ed. That's, um, that's a wonderful point. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you.
Sarah, I loved the part of the poem about, um, I forget how how it says it, we're not, we're not at the center of the universe, something like that. Um, at, but I, rem, I was recalling then uh, numbers of years ago, an early um, book in American Zen by a Rinzai teacher. And I think it's called something like, everything is the center of the universe or you are the center of the universe. So there's this other side where each of us or each situation is the whole point of the universe. And yet, as you were saying, and as Mr. Rilke was saying, we're all <laughs> outside of the center of the universe. It's, a, it's It just brought to mind this lovely dynamic. Anyway, I don't know if you have any comments on that. Yeah, that's um, that uh, reminds me of. Um, I mean, I guess that's the Dharma, right? It's not <laughs> as soon as we posit one thing in, in one sense, we're kind of missing the other side of it, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's the both both and, neither nor of yeah our place in things. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's lovely. I really like that. Um, Thank you for your lovely talk. Um, Sarah, it's Laurel here. So wonderful to see you. Um, This is a uh, response to your question about how to talk to how to answer people when they ask you to explain Buddhism in in a minute. Um, And you're never quite sure that they're actually listening to you when you're telling them. So sometimes I tell them, I said, okay, well, here's a Buddhist riddle. Uh, What two words are bad news to happy people and good news to miserable people? And the answer to that riddle is everything changes. <laughs> so, and then, and then we can talk a little bit about what Buddhism is and sort of gets the conversation started sometimes if they really want to have a conversation. So I think there's a better way to tell that riddle. I'm always poor at remembering the exact words of jokes and riddles, but you get the idea. I hope to see you sometime soon. Yes, yes. Um. Oh, that's great. I love that. I will put that in my, in my, my mind bank for. (laughs) So I just, first of all, I want to say hello, my dear friend. It's really nice to see you as always. Um, And I'm glad you're, you're doing well. And thanks for the talk. Um, I think what it reminded me is that like, um, I, 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 I have this um, delusion, I guess, that I, you know, I'm, I haven't, I'm headed toward figuring out what I'm supposed to do, like, that, that it's all leading to one <laughs> thing that I haven't figured out yet, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I feel the more realistic um, view is that, like, I'm just going to be doing a lot of different things mm-hmm. through my life and that there isn't, like, it's and it's and it's because I'm thinking about like that stable ground of like that's what it feels like to me that I I'm gonna someday I'll find that thing that I'm supposed to do and that's the stable ground and I'll be doing that until I die or something but I think uh, your talk is reminding me to accept and maybe even embrace that you know the I'm gonna be like the that there's gonna be different projects that are gonna be important to me through different periods of my life. Um, and that that's, that's, that is like, that's, that that's good, you know, that it's not like it's all leading to one thing. And the, when I'm not doing that one thing, I'm, it's a waste of time or something. It's that there's, it's um, it, because everything changes, it's going to keep, I'm going to keep changing with it, you know. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, Tagan's comment uh, 
reminded me so much of the, the samadhi about the harmony of difference and sameness. It just, you know, it hit the spot there. I, yeah, I um, I think the Dharma is a really useful tool for all of this stuff. <laughs> um, I gotta say, <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it seems to, to have a lot to offer, um, which I'm very grateful for. Um, and it seems to, um, yeah, help, help at least me engage with things in a way that's, open and and changing um and helps me avoid some of those pitfalls of being uh, very certain about things um in a way that's causes me to miss the other side uh, as you were you were saying tegan um yeah